Just before we start, don't forget, John and I are live on stage. The red velvet seats, I can see them now, John, Ooh. of the Olympia, <laughs> the 5th of March. David McQuinion's podcast, live. Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. See you there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you doing there it's podcast time John has just sung me the first course of down in the tube station at midnight by the jam one of my pitch, favorites ever. Pitch perfect. Uh, <laughs> his Paul Weller impression has always been second to none. His Brooks Foxton jumping with the bass guitar always. I think there was like a Rick Buckler. Rick Buckler. But the yeah. reason we are talking about down in the tube station at midnight for the younger listener, you may not have heard of this track. You should Google it and uh, get it up on Spotify. But don't use Spotify because Joe Rogan's been hustling poor Al Neil Young, another favourite of yours yes. during the while. But the reason... <laughs> don't, don't get me into that Spotify route. The reason we are talking about Down the Tube Station at midnight is because that is a track that will never, ever be recorded by an Irish band. Why? Because we have no tubes. Because we've no metro. <laughs> well, for now, anyway. For we, now. we might do in the far distant future. Do you know the London Underground... Do you know when it was started? Right. In the 1860s. Right. But think about that, right? We still have not got a metro in this country. And allegedly, our metro is not going to be started until 20. Well, initially, it wasn't Eamon Ryan saying that uh, he couldn't guarantee that it'd be finished by 2035. And now? And now... They're not even sure if they can guarantee it would be started by 2035. Can can somebody please explain to John and myself, what is the problem? Why can we not bore a few tunnels under Dublin City like every other European capital, not European, Latin American capital all over, not to mention Asian capital, right? And do what the rest of the world is doing and do it quickly. Because, I mean... I have a few theories, but you've been watching something on... Yeah, no, I, I, I was telling you this just a few minutes ago. During the week there, flicking around the stations, you know, kind of brain dead. And I came across this documentary on BBC Four, The Secret History of the Motorway, okay. a love story. 
you know one of those documents you just drawn into it and it was full of those pathé type clips but it was fascinating now and here's a few facts from it okay they built the M1 motorway from London to Birmingham 110 miles in 19 months but that was 110 miles yeah 110 miles of motorway and 200 bridges they were building a mile of motorway from scratch from Greenfield site every eight days and a bridge every three days. That's extraordinary. Unbelievable pace of work. Most of them were Irish. Yeah. In actual fact, you know, the funny thing is there were so many Irish on that, uh, Irish Catholics on, yeah. on that project that they had to bring in two priests. To say to, mass. To say mass. <laughs> and as one of the guys says, yeah, so, th- so they came in there and they would say mass on the side of the, on, on the building side, basically. And and that was great, as long as it was done by opening time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Was it was a little bit sad because they were all so, you know, their life was work well, well, and drink. That's a story we should tell, the story of Irish labourers in London in the 1950s, because it's an extraordinary, all over England, mm. you know, half a million, half a million Irish people, half yeah. a million emigrated in the 50s alone yeah. to yeah. the UK. And the lion's share of those was to Manchester, the West Midlands. My dad always told me lots and lots of people from around Dawkins and Leary went to work at the RAF in Coventry, uh, wasn't Coventry, it? Coventry, yeah. Yeah, Coventry. that was a big place, yeah. Uh, of course, London. And it's an extraordinary story. It's also the story of the Irish soccer team. Do you remember like the, the <laughs> no, the Jack Charlton soccer team? Yeah, yeah, they yeah. They had all these so-called plastic patties. They were all the first generation sons of those people who left. Yeah. No, it's an extraordinary story, but it brings us back to the fact that public infrastructure needs to be given primacy over almost everything. Because in order to build, you need to actually put the collective good over the individual good. Yeah. So I'm sure, for example, if you try to do that now, you'd have all these farmers, like, you know, the Brits are trying to build this, what's it called, this this, this train link, and they take oh, them ages. The, yeah, 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 yeah the, the high-speed train. Yeah. yeah, so all these farmers are not over my land, not over my land, and you don't have any collective will. So back in the 50s, when they were building this... Well, it was a totally different mindset. Totally different mindset that we actually do something for the good of the populace. Yeah. And uh, with that in mind... And By the way, sorry, yeah, just one on. other thing. Do you know how many houses that had to be demolished in that 110 miles? I don't know. Five. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it was going wow. through... Now, in fairness... Greenfields. So, yeah, so yeah. going through Greenfields. But you know the great thing about putting a metro in? No houses demolished because you put underground. That's true. Right? But people are going to complain and people are complaining you know and it's nimbyism is part of the irish problem that every time you have a piece of public infrastructure somebody complains right now there was a fine we're just for non-irish listeners bear with us we're just looking at something very very peculiar to dublin and ireland at the moment milltown a rather swanky suburb of uh, (laughs) south dublin yeah there has been objections by the eglinton residence association have decided that they are going to, even though we have a housing crisis, right? Yeah. And the solution to too few houses is more houses. Yeah, yeah. Every time there's a development, there's somebody complains. But this is the best one. This is the best one. Is that a 97-unit built-to-rent apartment scheme in Milltown is being objected to by the Eglinton Residents Association on the grounds that it will lead to a ghettoized population. What does that even mean? Bullshit is what it means, right? <laughs> it means nimbyism. It means don't put anything near us. 
We've got our nice golf club. We've got our nice houses. We've got our nice schools. And we don't want to share this space with anyone, right? Mm. The reason they're saying ghettoized is because the people will be renting. Now, think about the attitude that we're homeowners and they're renters. And yeah. renters are not real people because they live in ghettos because they're not buying. They're buying off what would be, I'd say, pension funds. Yeah. Right? So they're not real people. They're ghettoized. So automatically, not only do you get the anti-development, but what you get is it's layered with oodles of snobbery. And that's the Milltown, uh, so yeah. not the Milltown, the, the Eglinton Residence, Eglinton Road Residence Association. Now, the problem is, John, yes, that if we keep vilifying apartment builders because these apartments are being built for renters, we will never solve the problem. I think you just build and build and build. Now, yes, they have to come in under specifications, and yes, but this application here, this objection is not on the basis of density or the basis of planning or the basis of anything. It's just on the basis of we don't like but, those so, type of people in our neck of the woods. But does that mean then that if they built the apartment block for sale, that would be a different Well, story. they couldn't call it a ghetto. So, but if it was open to the market... I don't know. No, of course not, because these people are serial objectors. But what... what yeah. That's what I okay. think, right? Yeah. And the interesting thing is the build to rent idea gets us into the discussion I want to have today, which is about the financialization of housing. And this is a problem, right? So housing all over the world has become a commodity, yeah. right? Which is now financed by large investment funds. And those large investment funds are getting financed themselves by QE, yeah. right? Quantitative easing mm -hmm. and by what they call the ZIRP, which is the zero interest rate policies of the Fed. Yeah. So fascinatingly, and this is what I want to talk about. I mean, the Milton, the, the Eglinton residents, we can discuss them again, right? But they should join the great legions of Yimbyists, shouldn't they? Absolutely. They yes, should. in my backyard. Yeah. Yes, I want more people. I want more life. I want more dynamism. I want everything. But here's the link, and this is fascinating, because I want to talk to you about the Federal Reserve, right? Yes. I want to talk to you about international financial markets. I want to talk to you about the volatility of stock markets, which saw Meta. Do you remember we talking about Metaverse the other day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were a little bit skeptical. We didn't know the value of Meta, the underlying Facebook company that changed its name because Facebook was getting so much bad press, yeah, yeah. was down last Friday, $290 billion it lost off its valuation. Yeah, there was something like 25%. In one day. Now, what that shows is that markets That's are... It is outrageous. And then, of course, the next day, or the next piece of news is, is Amazon shares go up through the roof because Amazon is beating all expectations. Right. So what you have is extraordinary volatility in the tech sector. And the tech sector is the sector where it's more about promises of making you money in the future and changing the world. It's kept the valuations up, right? Mm. So the question is, why is this now so volatile? And what's the connection to the Eglinton Residents Association. And the connection is the fact that real estate, which used to be financed locally in Ireland mm -hmm. by developers and banks and builders, has now become an international commodity, which is now being played by large pension funds, by hedge funds, by property development funds. And what they're looking at is they're looking at the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy 
and they are making bets in local, non-American, international property markets, and they're playing the yield curve. So what they're doing is everything now has become a commodity. Yeah. And everything now has a price. And that price isn't the use value of property. So the use value of property is you live, you hang out. You yeah, know, yeah, right? yeah. It's the market value, right? It's what people are prepared to pay for that use. And if you have a property development in Ireland that yields you 5% per year, one of those buy to rent, well, then this will be worth your while getting involved. Now, the question I have is we don't like this, right? Mm. We should identify the source of the problem the source of the problem is twofold. One is that all over the world, international money has seeped into every nook and cranny of the local economy, right? Yeah. And then the second one is the way in which our government treats the tax implications of those companies. We give them tax breaks to invest here, even though those companies are already getting a subsidy from the Federal Reserve. So I'll explain all that in the next... Hour. But the last thing is, I don't want to be ever against building houses because you've got a housing problem you've got to build. But I think it's important for people to understand the link between the Fed, the financial markets, the share price of Metaverse, the share price of Amazon, and the way in which apartments are being built in Ireland. And there is a link, and it's all through the Fed. So what is the link then? And, and by the way, why the Fed and not the ECB, for instance? Ah, very good question. Because at the end of the day, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, right? Yeah. And what happens in the United States sets the cost of capital for most of the world. Okay, right. And right. the reason is the following, is that the biggest market is the dollar market. The most important central bank is the Federal Reserve. And so many other prices are priced off the rate of interest of the United States. That's why the Fed is unbelievably important. Now, the ECB is important in Europe, mm. right? And there's a huge contingent of European politicians that want to see the euro as a competitor to the dollar. Right. And they believe that basically the currencies are an extension of political power. So if you have a strong currency, your political power is extended and Europeans have to have a strong currency. I get all that. But still, despite the fact, and it's amazing, despite the fact the European economy, the amalgamated European economy is bigger than the United States economy. Right, yeah. The EU economy amalgamated is bigger, right? Okay. The European the Eurozone economy, economy is probably a little bit smaller, but we're talking about a huge part of the global economy. Mm. But still, the Fed has the cachet. The Americans have the cachet. And if you go, as I always say, the best indicator of the credibility of a currency is whether or not taxi drivers in the third world know the exchange <laughs> yeah. rate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They rarely know the euro exchange rate. They yeah. always know the dollar exchange rate. Okay, that's just part and of it. And they used to know sterling as well, actually. Well, that's when sterling was a dominant currency. Yeah. And the lesson from sterling, do you know that great expression, sterling performance? Yes, yeah, that yeah. That came yeah. from the fact that the currency, the UK currency, up until 1914, was the dominant currency in the world. And after the First World War, sterling started to slide. And then after the Second World War, sterling started to tank. And it's been actually declining ever since. 
So right. it used to be the biggest, and that's a, that's a that's a warning to everybody. Yeah, and now of course with Brexit, it's declining even more. Even more, even more. It's 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 apparently going up a wee bit, but it's 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 yeah, it, right. it's, it's cachet has gone. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, it's yeah. now a small currency in a small country, yeah. right, with a very big financial sector. But interestingly, if we come back to the idea, the Fed is the top dog, and what I want to talk about now is the link between the Fed and property markets all around the world. And the link is that all these property companies borrow in dollars, right? Yeah. And they borrow in dollars because for the last few years, it's been unbelievably cheap to borrow in dollars. Not only are the Americans giving you zero interest rates, or were up until recently, okay, but they're also giving you QE, which means as an American bank, or what they call quasi-banks, you can go in to the the Fed and say, here's all these assets we have on our balance sheet that are illiquid, like properties and bonds or whatever. Will you give us cash? The Fed gives them cash. They then lend to these pension funds. And that's how the cost of capital in America has an impact on the price of houses here and the price of rent here. Right. And it's all interlinked. But I tell you what, we're going to go now and talk to an extraordinary journalist in the States who has written a fantastic book called The Lords of Easy Finance. His name is Christopher Leonard. And what I want to ask him is not exactly about the policy, but who are the people? Because people make policy. And if the Federal Reserve is so important to the global economy, you've got to ask, who are these people? Yeah. Because nobody knows. Like You know who Joe Biden is. To get elected, Joe Biden has to tell you his feckin' life story, who he was, what he's done. It's <laughs> yeah, totally yeah, yeah. open. Everybody knows everything about him. It's transparent, right? Okay, so at least political leaders who exercise power have been thoroughly vetted by the voters. Technocratic leaders who exercise arguably more power. Yes. Nobody's a clue who they were. Nobody's a clue who where they worked, what they did, where they came from, what their background is, and yet they have unbelievable power. And at the top of that is the head of the Fed, a guy called Jay Powell. So what I want to know the next few minutes is, who is this dude? Who's Jay? Who's Jay? Now, during the week, I actually, no, about two weeks ago, I was reading a review of a review in the New York Times, and it was a book called The Lords of Easy Money. And that reminded me of a fantastic book called The Lords of Finance, which is about central banking ahead of the Great Depression. Very, very interesting book if you're into this sort of stuff. So at that, first of all, the, the, the title caught my, caught my eye, and then the content was right up my street, which is basically The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Now, that's the headline. That's the title. And it's written by a... New York Times bestselling author, journalist Christopher Leonard, who's on the on the line from Missouri, from Kansas City, Missouri. But I can just give you a little bit about the book before we start. It's well worth it. Go out, get it, The Lords of Easy Money. If you want to understand the Fed, finance, what has happened since we're going all the way back to uh, going back to Greenspan, all the various characters, it reads like a detective story. It is fantastically laid out. The detail is Amazing. It's extraordinary. But the ramifications, consequences, and implications of what Christopher Leonard has to say are enormous for everybody. And we want to talk about that. But we have him on the line. Christopher, how are you? 
I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Listen, first of all, congratulations on the book. It's it's a fantastic, fantastic read. But before we do this, I want I'm going to probably do second podcast on the book, okay? But this part of the interview or the chat, I just want to talk to you is about in the book you do something fascinating, which is you take the characters who are involved at the decision making at the highest level of the Federal Reserves. And you do what all great journalists do is you tell me, you tell me the reader who they are. Who is this geezer? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, one of the people you draw very well is Jay Powell, the, the head now of the Fed. I want to ask you, because Jay Powell came out this week and said, look, I said there was going to be three interest rate rises this year. You know what? There could be more. I'm not too sure. There could be four. There could be five. There could be, he didn't put a finger on it, but he was, he was suggesting, you know, prepare yourself for something else. Uh, the markets reacted accordingly. What sort of character is Jay Powell? Who is he? Uh, Jay Powell is a fascinating guy. And and you're right, he's one of the main characters of the book. And, and I guess the best way I could put it is the first chapter that's really about Jay Powell. The title of that chapter is The Fixer. And that's how I see this guy. Uh, Jay Powell was really born in in the upper reaches of power in America. He's born in a wealthy suburb of Washington, D.C. He went to an elite Jesuit private school uh, where, you know, other alumni include Supreme Court justices, United States senators, CEOs. Um, This is the environment he grew up in. He went to Georgetown Law. But what's so interesting to me is Jay Powell immediately left the world of law and entered the world of finance in New York, where he worked for an old school private equity firm called Dylan Reed. And then he rotated from the private equity world to the United States Treasury, where he was a deputy secretary under the first George Bush in the late 1990s. And then from the Department of Treasury, he pivots back to the world of private equity. So the way I describe it, is this is a highly, highly competent, and I might add, very charming guy who knows how to meet the needs of big government and big finance. He, he, he's the guy you go to when there's a sticky situation, uh, when a scandal needs to be handled. He, he knows how, how to handle things. He, he's a smooth operator, and, and it's acknowledged he's probably the best, most politically astute Fed chairman we've had in decades. And again, he's a guy who knows how to meet the needs of big money and big government. And we could walk through it. But I mean, you know, in in the world of private equity, he he was very successful and and knows how to work with banks. He knows how to orchestrate uh, and syndicate leveraged loans, corporate bonds. Uh, I, I profile one of the big corporate buyouts that he did and earned his company $900 million. And, you know, at Treasury... He had to handle a a trading scandal back in the 90s where Solomon Brothers was caught fraud, defrauding the federal government. And and Jay Powell is kind of the guy that they put out front to handle that and to smooth over the scandal while taking care of the needs of the fraudulent bank Solomon Brothers and the leaders at the United States Treasury. And, 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 you know, the reason I'm talking about this is I see the same instincts and I see the same skill set. With Jay Powell today, when when he gets up and gives these FOMC press conferences, um, he's very good at at describing things in a calm and clinical manner, while leaving out a lot of important truths in what he says time and time again. 
and, and he, he's really trying to manage a pretty untenable situation right now. So I don't, I don't envy the guy. But, but so that's how I see Jay Powell. When you talk about Jay Powell, Christopher, what you've just painted the picture of is a guy who understands being the custodian of this superhighway between Washington and Wall Street, which is a huge element of your analysis in your book, that there is an umbilical link between the big government and big money. And at times, crucial times, it means the interests of big money are always biased or prefaced. Would you say that's a fair understanding? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that at times. I would say constantly, <laughs> forever, and at all times. <laughs> the needs of big money are preeminent and victorious. And, and I'm not trying to be glib here. I, I really am trying to be serious. When you, when you look at American political history, let's just start at the year 2000, okay, just to keep it simple. Yeah. The needs of big money have won the political dispute every single time. And that's probably one of the biggest stories about the crash of 2008, 2009. I mean, to take one example, you know, the, the phrase too big to fail kind of entered the American lexicon for sure at that time. We had these banks that could not be allowed to fail. Those banks, the too big to fail banks, have become larger and less able to fail, and also now joined by this sort of shadow banking system of private equity firms like the one employed Jay Powell, Carlyle Group, large head funds, you know, like Larry Fink's BlackRock. Yeah. And those are the folks in America who don't lose. When we have policy disputes, you have winners and losers. And, and I would say, I think your term superhighway is, is a perfect, perfect term. To, to encapsulate what's happened. And yes, Jay Powell knows how to manage this relationship. And, and again, I don't, I don't want to get off base, but you know, we had a, a serious financial crash in March of 2020, which of course was caused by COVID. It was co of course caused by the shutdown. But you know, the, the Fed stepped in and, and executed a hyper-efficient, large-scale bailout of asset holders yep. who were made whole they were made whole within a matter of months <laughs> and not just made whole, but then, you know, supercharged with Fed quantitative easing and money printing and have gone on to break record levels ever since COVID. While the real economy has, has sort of been like limping out of the wreckage ever since. So the needs of big money are met in America and, and Jay Powell knows, knows how to do that very well. So just before we conclude this little snippet on Jay Powell, because it's timely this week, before we talk about the bigger issues in the book, which you know go back 30, 40 years with great detail. Given that's where Powell comes from, and, and that's 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 his his brief is to is to protect the interest of big money and also protect the interests of, of financial markets. He has this problem though, which is that the the debt pile is so big. Yeah. And the amount of money out there, the amount of debt out there is so enormous that raising interest rates automatically runs a risk of injuring his mates in big money right now. Yeah. So will these be his calculations all the time? So the, the policy history of Jay Powell uh, at the Federal Reserve is fascinating to me. And it kind of helps illuminate what we're talking about here quickly. 
So Jay Powell joins the Federal Reserve in 2012 as a so-called governor, one of seven governors of our central bank who join these regional bank presidents to make key decisions. And so when this guy comes in, Jay Powell, coming straight from the world of finance, basically, he was warning in really stark terms that the Fed was engaged in risky experiments. As you know, and, and, and your listeners know, the Federal Reserve kept interest rates pinned at zero for seven years, an extraordinary break with historic norms, while at the same time, more than quadrupling our monetary base here through the program called quantitative easing, okay? I call it money printing, even though it's not physical currency, but the Fed was buying assets and just pumping new cash into the Wall Street banking system to try to stimulate growth. So it was this decade of extraordinarily easy money policies and that's what I try to lay out in the book is why that happened and what the effects were. I obviously think the effects were pretty deleterious to America. But anyway, Jay Powell came in and said, hey, folks, and he was echoing the thoughts of many others. He said, if we keep doing this, we're going to be stoking asset prices to a level that's just unsustainable. OK, it's the common term is an asset bubble. When you pump that much money into Wall Street, you create asset bubbles for reasons we could unpack. But he was saying, this thing is going to crash. He was saying, according to the transcripts of the meetings, he was saying, we're getting very limited short-term gains for this stuff, and we're creating these long-term risks, and we should pull back. Well, what's so interesting is that as Jay Powell kind of got acclimated to the Federal Reserve, as he started to kind of rise up through the ranks, these warnings die away. And he, he begins to embrace these easy money policies you know, at least what his co-workers thought were, was political reasons to kind of, you know, succeed and acclimate himself to the leadership at the Fed. And, and what you've seen with Jay Powell is the tug of war of trying to pull back these extraordinary stimulus programs. I mean, they've been trying to pull this stuff back since 2016. But every time the Fed tries to raise interest rates or stop the money pumping, the markets react negatively, but I would also say the markets react rationally. The markets say, okay, well, let's let's rearrange our risk portfolio here. This stuff isn't going to make sense if the Fed's not keeping interest rates at zero. But every time the markets have started to fall, Jay Powell has reversed course and stepped back from this so-called tightening. That's the that's the tug of war that Jay Powell's been engaged in for years. But now here we are in 2022. And, and it's not as easy of, of a game anymore because we're seeing something in the U.S. we haven't seen in decades, which is very, very high and hot price inflation. Okay, so now yeah. the rubber is hitting the road and Jay Powell is going to almost certainly be forced to tighten, which he's been avoiding to do, and, and be forced to cause these market corrections that the Fed has been avoiding for years. So... You know, your question was, isn't he going to be in this position where he's going to have to raise rate and, and hurt big money? And I, and I think the answer is yes. But the question is really still out. The next year is extraordinarily unpredictable. That's why U.S. markets have been <laughs> Monday. The markets opened down. They fell dramatically. I think the Dow was down a thousand points. And then everybody took a lunch break and came out and the Dow rose a thousand points. Yeah. And I think that's everybody trying to figure out where's the Fed going to be but this on this is, stuff. This is my thing. is That's the market going for lunch and figuring out how to figure out what's going on in Jay Powell's head. 
Yeah. And sometimes they think, ooh, he's going to get all bearish and he's going to tighten and then they freak out. And then somebody, there's a communique or a slippage or a rumor or a thing, they say, well, maybe he won't do that. So this is why I'm saying individuals matter so much. This is why I'm asking you about Kim before we talk about the book and the biggest things, because we forget economists are very good at dehumanizing stories that make us tick and taking out the personality and the person and the and the guy who the guy goes for a drink with, who the guy hangs out with, where is his cultural baggage coming from? And those things are enormously important in understanding the pivotal decisions that change the world. Without a question. And I mean, to kind of shade in detail, you know, where you come from, what your cultural baggage is, what your viewpoint of the world matters. And, and, and then that kind of defines what people you have around you, advising you. What are the ideas they're giving you? Uh, we know for a fact, Jay Powell has been on the phone all the time with Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. Well, you know, that's a certain- He's The richest guy in the world. The world. <laughs> One of the richest guys in the world. Yes, exactly. With interests, with vested interests. And you know, one of the people I interviewed for the book is Steve Mnuchin, the former Secretary of Treasury, who's on the phone with Jay Powell all the time, who also comes from this world of private equity. So, you know, they they certainly have a a set of viewpoints, and and that's one thing that struck me that I'm really trying to portray in the book is that these are humans making the decisions, and that these decisions being made made at the central bank all across the world at different central banks, but particularly at the Fed, these are policy decisions that create winners and losers. And here in the US, we've we've kind of subscribed to this idea that the Fed is just this technocratic institution full of PhD economists who are solving math equations. It's not real. These are human beings. They're making policy decisions. It can be striking at how much these decisions are truly based on hunches and worldviews. You know, we're talking about Jay Powell, but Ben Bernanke is also a very significant figure. Ben Bernanke is a guy who very much like Jay Powell would get up in public and project complete certainty and 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 clinical detachment. As he described in 2012, Bernanke got up and gave this big speech where he described how quantitative easing was working fine. And, and you know, the doubters were wrong. And then he goes into a, a meeting behind closed doors and says, another round of quantitative easing will be a, quote, shot in the proverbial dark. Well, that's a different kind of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so these people are making policy decisions and, and they're only human. Chris, but that just, that insight into Jay Powell's brains, mind is, was fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating to me. And I would like to say I was struck by how underreported it has been in the US. Jay Powell is described as a lawyer, for example, all the time. He's not. He's a private equity guy. And, and, and his history in that business is revealing. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Christopher Lloyd there is brilliant. Interesting guy, isn't he? Very interesting guy. But actually, what stands out to that is that, and we've spoken about this before, the whole meritocracy stuff. Mm-hmm. Jay Powell epitomizes Yeah, you're right, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. By the way, if you're interested in that stuff about the Fed and Christopher's discussions there, we are going to bring you, in about two weeks' time, the full discussion about his book, about the history of asset bubbles, monetary policy, all that stuff in the United States. Now, back to the meritocracy. Yeah, so... And and just just another point on that, the very fact that it came from the likes of Dylan Reed and all those kind of... And he was up to his oxers in Wall Street and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Is there not a conflict of interest then? Well, I'll tell you a very interesting thing. The Bretton Woods Conference, 1948 after the end of the Second World War, the one that set up the IMF and the World Bank and all these things, right? Bretton Woods was presided over largely by Americans with some British input, but it was mainly Americans. And do you know who they banned from the Bretton Woods Conference? Now, Bretton Woods was about creating the monetary infrastructure for the world, Yeah. okay, after the Second World War. And do you know who they banned? Who? Bankers. Right. There were no representative of the banking industry at Bretton Woods. Why was that? Because Keynes, the British economist who was still knocking around at the time, and the American Treasury secretaries and the American civil servants knew there would be a conflict of interest if they got the bankers in the room. So they excluded them. They said, we're going to create a monetary infrastructure and architecture here, and we don't need you. Because you guys are all compromised. You're going to mess up the party. You're going to, you're, what you're going to do is you're going to jaundice our clarity of thought by your own agendas. And you know what? We don't need you. Because they looked back and they said, okay, what happened after the First World War? 
was reparations. Reparations were handled by and mediated by the banking system. Mm. The banking system then agitated to go back to the gold standard. Why? Because the gold standard, if you lend money to punters and you demand that they pay you in gold and the price of gold is going up, you actually get money for sitting on your Swiss roll. Right? Okay. Mm. Yeah. So they so that's interesting. So I come back to the J Powell. So in the old days, senior public servants were aware of the extraordinary conflict of interest and the fact that financial instability brings down governments. Yeah. Because governments tend to have to bail out banks during a situation of a crisis, right? Mm. So therefore they're soldered on. Now, fascinatingly, since the 90s, right, 80s, but particularly 90s, this superhighway between Wall Street and Washington that I spoke about has become solidified, first under Bill Clinton, then under Bush the Younger, then under Obama in a huge way, and then again under Trump and now under Biden that the interests of Wall Street are very, very close to the Treasury secretaries. So, you know, the Jay Powell's of this world, right? As Christopher says, they come from private equity. And yeah. private equity is the spivvy end of the market. Why? Because private equity... It's, no, it, it is. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's what basically private equity does is it takes punts on companies. So the private equity model is... We will bet on 20 new companies, okay? Mm. We will go with, let's say, for example, so private equity and VC, so venture capital, are all kind of slightly interrelated. So you have the VC model of we will back with private equity finance yeah. 20 companies. At least if one of them comes good, we're going to be flying. Yeah. Okay? That's and kind the, of throwing off shit at the wall and something's meant to stay. Yeah, exactly. Right? And then you go back to the deep private equity funds, right? And basically they are replacing the old banking system. And deep in the ferment there are companies that are borrowing from the Fed, are at least at one remove from the Fed at zero interest rates, and placing bets around ultimately to serve the interests of very, very wealthy people mm. who are their shareholders, right? Now and mates. And this is the key. And mates, right? Yeah. So what is fascinating is that the guy at the very top of the American finance system, the guy who actually prints the money, he actually prints it, right? Okay, who makes the decisions on printing the dollar, isn't close to the American people in the sense that his concerns are the real economy in the United States, manufacturing, services, American people getting access to mortgages, American people getting access to loans, American companies getting overdrafts, right? He is coming directly from the finance world, which is really the world of alchemy, the casino, Wall Street, the punters. And that's what he's saying. Christopher Lenz really saying, like, watch out, because yes, these guys are meritocrats, but only within their own meritocracy. And of course, the original, just so we go back, the original, we think now a meritocrat sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Right? Win something on merit. Yeah, yeah. because well, it's this idea of IQ plus sweat equals merit. Mm. Okay? Interestingly, The Rise of the Meritocracy, the book from the 1950s, was written by a British 
Labour politician called Michael Young, big brainy fella mm. after the Second World War. And we take the meritocracy to be indicative of a good, uncorrupted system. These people got to the top because of... Young said, no, 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 no. This is... His book was a warning from the future that this technocratic class would take over. And because they thought they deserved everything they got, because yeah. they worked hard for it, yeah. they couldn't see that they were a new elite, just like the aristocracy. Right. And in yeah. the same way as yeah. the aristocracy created the House of Lords in order to make sure that they and their mates and their kids yeah. had a say in the running of society. The meritocracy too create a chumocracy, okay, yeah. of your mates. And that's what Christopher's talking about. And this leads to, as, and this is something that you've spoken about before as well, is this whole idea of groupthink. Yeah. So, so there's no fresh thinking that comes into this. Well, it's that idea like, so for example, the people who do very, very well in university, let's say in the American, the Ivy Leagues, right? All those Yales and Harvards mm. and Princetons and yada, 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 right? And they all do very well. And basically they, they get into Yale and Harvard and say, oh, you're very clever. And they say, oh, Jesus, I'm very, very clever. And we're all very, very clever. And then they hang around with very clever people and they mate with clever people, yeah. right? So there's a mating that's a sort of, a, in the rich savannah of American cleverness, there's a sort of a mating culture, right? The marriage page, you know, the marriage announcements? Yes, used to be yeah. called the mergers and acquisitions because <laughs> that's what it was. Like one meritocrat marries the other meritocrat. And then what happens is it's this thing that we know uh, called confirmation bias yeah. in psychology. Now, basically, we, despite the fact that we suggest we like to be questioned, we don't. We like our biases to be confirmed. So we hang around with people who think like us. Yeah. And we employ people who think like yeah. us. And then that's how groupthink gets in. No matter how big the society, if the upper echelons are drawn from a dwindling, dwindling pool of people, backgrounds, experiences, lifestyles, money, attitudes, etc., what you have is you've got a fetid pool of people who believe the same thing. Now, if, and this is the key, because you've been told you're very clever all the way up, you're clever, 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 and you get all the stars and national school and la, 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 all the <laughs> way through, right? You don't get hit by the meter stick, all that sort of stuff, right? Your sense of yourself is entombed or enveloped in this idea that you're always right because yeah. you've always got the right answer. So the hardest thing, if your sense of yourself is I'm the person who's always right, the hardest thing you can do is be wrong. Yeah. But we know that you're only learning in life when you're wrong. Because if you're right, you know the shit in the first place, so you're not learning. So being wrong is part of the growing process. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then you've always talked about science. The great thing about scientific progress is all about some person being proved they're wrong. Yeah. So the whole world of science yeah. is well, about- Well, the whole idea of, of a theory or a thesis is that it needs to be challenged. And the uh, progress in science is littered with people who are wrong. And that's yeah. the amazing thing about scientists as opposed to economists or other people. Real scientists understand that being wrong is the process of the propulsion of knowledge. Yeah. Right? So they accept it. Say, okay, that's fair enough. And away we go. Yeah. Whereas other quasi-sciences, right? And economics have put in this, yeah. okay? Can't see that being wrong is actually what, make, what makes us all right. But if you're not used to or accepting that, you will get groupthink. And that's when you make big mistakes. Because people cannot accept that they could be wrong, the whole group think the same way, and we all go off the cliff together. And that is the big danger in the Fed 
and the Fed's land grab of the intellectual curiosity of the United States when it comes to economics. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us and getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz, follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.